You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Last week when we were together, we left off at Matthew chapter 18, verse 18 was the last verse we covered together. But I'm going to back it up just a little bit and begin at verse 15, because I think it's important for us to grab a little bit of context from where we were before. So we're going to begin tonight in Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now again, Jesus here is addressing conflict within the body of Christ. And one of the very first things I come to in my own mind when I think of this and when I read verse 15 is that Jesus doesn't seem to be shocked about conflict among his followers. In other words, it's no panic for Jesus that there would be such conflict. Neither is there panic in the writings of the Apostle Paul when he writes to different churches and tells them how to get along with one another. All the time he's saying, forgive one another, love one another, bear with one another, be long-suffering towards one another. All these ideas of the one another statements in the letters of Paul. All of this leads us to consider the fact that conflict among Christians is not really unusual. You, you shouldn't think that there's deep failings or faults among Christians just because there's conflict. Now, I agree. Theoretically, if everybody was walking in the Spirit all of the time, then there would never be conflicts among God's people. But that's not us, is it? I mean, it's not us for maybe even one hour of the day. And even if it were me, it wouldn't be you. And even if it were you, it wouldn't be me. So there's always going to be problems. No, our godliness is much more shown in the way that we respond to these problems rather than the problems themselves. So, so how do you deal with it when there's conflict between one brother and another brother, or a brother and a sister, or a sister and a sister, however you want to describe it, within the body of Christ? Well, first of all, he says here, verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. No other reason to bring anybody else into this. You can talk about the fault between you and your brother alone. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here that Jesus would also tell us, and I'll admit it's an assumption, that Jesus would also tell us in this context that another option we have in the body of Christ is to simply ignore an offense, right? I mean, isn't this a difficult line to draw? You, we, we shouldn't be having a formal confrontation of sin over every little transgression in the body of Christ, right? But certainly, there are some transgressions which require a confrontation in the body of Christ. And where that line is, it's very difficult to discern. So I'm assuming here that Jesus is giving us the option to just forget about things. To just say, well, yes, this brother gave me a cross look or said a cross word or did something to hurt my feelings or to damage my reputation in some small way or this or that. But in the name of Christian love and charity, I'm just going to overlook it. I'm just going to forgive him and I'm going to forget about it. Now, if you can do that and cleanse your heart of the concern of it, then fine. But if you cannot, if it's an issue that eats away with you, if this is something that you feel must be resolved, then first go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And the way Jesus tells it to us, it gives us the implication that you haven't told four or five of your very closest friends about it beforehand, right? You, you, you haven't investigated the issue with them, uh, especially under the guise of a prayer request. You've just gone and directly spoken with them. Why break the, the, the circle, the small circle of the fence, if it's between me and you, let's just keep it between me and you unless there's a problem. And then Jesus says in verse 15, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now, I find this fascinating the way that Jesus phrased it. When he says, if he hears you, we assume that what Jesus meant was, if he hears you with agreement, and then perhaps contrition and a confession of sin. But that isn't exactly what Jesus said, is it? 
Jesus most literally said, if he hears you. In other words, the reaction I'm looking for when you have offended me and I come and confront you, the reaction I'm looking for from you is your total surrender. Yes, I'm so sorry. I did this wrong and it's all my fault. Would you please forgive me and I'll do my very best to never do it again. That's the reaction I'm looking for from you. Now, Jesus, by the strict words that he speaks here, is not requiring that. He's saying... I must regard it as a victory if you will but hear me. If you'll just be calm, if you'll just hear what I have to say, if you'll take it to heart, if you'll do that much, then it's my responsibility to say, okay, I've gained my brother, we've had this agreement, maybe we don't even leave agreeing on the offense or agreeing on the situation, but we just leave with this common, he's heard me, he's heard my heart, he's heard my concern. Well, Jesus didn't say that your brother has to agree with you or immediately repent. At first, it's enough if he just hears you. But what if he won't hear you? Well, verse 16, he says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But he refuses to hear even the church. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, notice what Jesus says here in verse 16. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more. The circle of people in the situation only becomes wider as the offending party refuses to listen. And if the offending party shows a stubborn, unrepentant attitude, then it remains that they should be, or excuse me, the result is that they should be refused fellowship among the believers. That's what Jesus meant by, let him be to you like a heathen. In other words, a heathen would not be recognized as part of the community of the disciples. But please, 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 let's understand. Would a heathen be hated? Would a heathen be destroyed with gossip and slander? Would a heathen be be rejected and, and, and treated, you know, as if that person were come? No, a heathen would be loved. How did Jesus treat heathens and tax collectors? He loved them. He showed grace and mercy to them. But he did not recognize them as his disciples. And so that's sort of the agreement that's come to. Listen, you're choosing to remain in sin. Fine. The church understands it. We've taken two or three more. You haven't listened to the two or three more. We've gone to the circle of the church. You haven't listened to the circle of the church. We regard you as an unbeliever. Now, you know what? That person may not be an unbeliever. Maybe they just are an extremely stubborn believer who doesn't want to repent. Nevertheless, they will be treated as if they are an unbeliever and regarded that way within the circle of fellowship there in that particular congregation. I have to say that this form of church discipline in our day and age is rendered almost meaningless. And I say almost meaningless. Why do I say that? Because let's just say in our own congregation, in your own church right there, let's say that there's somebody who sins against another brother. And let's say that that other brother goes and makes a confrontation in all meekness and all humility of heart, but the brother will not hear it. So what does he do? He goes back with one or two more. And let's say those one or two more are even leaders of the church. They're elders of the church. And they go in to confront that brother. And they come together. And when they come and confront, they're coming and evaluating the whole situation, right? Those two or three witnesses, they're not there just for my side, right? They're there to evaluate the whole situation. You know that great proverb, right? I'm afraid I can't tell you. Oh, it's Proverbs 18, 17. I've got it right here in my notes. The first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. How many times have you seen that in a dispute, right? You were so convinced that a person was wrong until you heard their side of the story. You hear their side of the story and you say, well, you know what? 
there's fault on both sides, or it's not the way I thought it was originally. But let's say after all of that, they're convinced that this man is still in the wrong, and then it's reported to the church, and you have a perfect aspect of church discipline. This man is told, listen, you're not welcome to come as this congregation and be regarded as a believer. If you are to show up among us, we're going to regard you as an unbeliever and treat you that way. What we're going to seek from you first and foremost is your repentance, just like we would seek for any unbeliever. Now, this is why I say that this church discipline, even if it were to happen perfectly every step along the way, is rendered almost meaningly in our day and age, because what is that individual likely to do in our day and age? They're likely to drive down the street to another congregation, go to that other congregation, and pretend as if nothing ever happened, right? And there's no resolution. I am afraid that I don't have a good answer for this problem. I'll tell you one solution that is helpful. It's not a cure-all. It doesn't fix everything, but it is helpful. It is helpful when pastors in the community have good communication one with another. And when pastors will say, and listen, when it works well, it works really good, we'll say, listen, um, so-and-so has started coming to our church, and he's coming from your church. I just want to know, did he leave your church with everything okay? That is a wonderful call for one pastor to make to another pastor. As someone who has been a pastor, I can tell you I have made such calls and I have received such calls. And when that kind of community, that kind of cooperation, then it's a wonderful thing. But we have to admit, it doesn't always, or maybe we should say, it doesn't often happen. What I want us to gain from this is that as Christians, we should be willing to put ourselves under church discipline. If the leaders of your church, if the elders, if the church structure, whatever it would be, or just some Christian brothers or sisters that you greatly respect, if they were to confront you and to say, we think you're in sin over this, would you believe them? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves in our Christian life. Who can tell you that you're wrong? Is there anybody in your life who can tell you that you're wrong? I have met people, and to be honest, no one can tell them that they're wrong. They won't believe them. That is an unhealthy place for us to be as Christians. No, not only do we learn from this passage here in Matthew chapter 18 how to exercise church discipline, do we not learn from it how we should respond to church discipline? And if the church comes to us and says, listen, I think you're wrong, we should respond to that and we should humbly submit to it. I believe God will honor that. Now, let's look at what Jesus says here in verse 18, though. After he says, But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's very interesting. Previously, Jesus spoke similar words to Peter and the apostles in the aftermath of Peter's dramatic confession that Jesus was the Christ. And what this was, was sort of giving an authority to the apostles. Jesus was using the language of binding and loosing, which was rabbinic language. Rabbinic language, which signified it's permitted or not permitted. It's allowed or not allowed. And in this particular context, because it's following up right on this place that would speak of church discipline, we believe that Jesus is saying that he's talking about whether people would be regarded as included or excluded within that congregation. In other words, if this process of church discipline is done humbly and according to the word of God, it is quite binding in the eyes of God, even if the unrepentant ones just go to another congregation. I like the way that Charles Spurgeon put this. He said, each church has the keys of its own door. When those keys are rightly turned by the assembly below, the act is ratified above. 
Now, again, this doesn't justify every act of church discipline because certainly church discipline is carried out in a wrong way or in a carnal way sometimes. That's certainly been true. But when it is carried out rightly, God recognizes it, and that should make us all the more willing to say, I will submit myself to the discipline of the church. Again, I would simply ask you, who can tell you that you're wrong and you will believe them? Have you ever, well, let me just say, there's been times in my own life, in my own ministry, where I've had a conflict with somebody in the, in the church, in the congregation. And um, I thought I was right, and they thought they were right, and the, the, it got a little, you know, I don't know, chronic or whatever you would want to call it in the difficulty of it. And then finally to the point where the elders of the church came in and they talked and we just went all through it and we went through the thing. And this is what they said. They said, David, we think that you need to repent of this and this. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I did not want to hear it. I did not want to hear it at all. But yet I said, I love these men. I respect them. If they tell me I'm wrong, I'll believe them. And I did. And I did what they said. I I wish I could have told you that the whole situation worked out really great after that, but it didn't. But at least I had the satisfaction in my conscience that I had done the right thing even when I didn't feel like doing it. And I also wish I could tell you that I responded in every situation like that in the same way. But at least I did once, I can tell you that. And I hope that I would again if I have a further opportunity. Now, we left it off there at verse 18 last time. Let's look now starting at verse 19. Jesus says, Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Okay, Jesus just got talking about this dynamic of the body and getting things right. He talked about what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And now he's saying that if any two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then that glorious promise of verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. Okay, first of all, verse 19. If two of you agree on earth, There is real power in agreement in prayer and in the presence of Jesus. Might we say that this is exactly what the unrepentant ones miss out on, right? When they're excluded from that communion of the body of Christ, when they're regarded as a tax collector and a heathen, this is exactly the kind of spiritual power and access that they miss out on. Instead, what it should be like in the body of Christ is two people gather together and they agree on earth concerning... They pray together about something. You know, in the ancient Greek, that word agree is literally to symphonize. Isn't that a great idea? To symphonize. Jesus wants us to complement each other like a great orchestra. The idea is of playing a bunch of musical instruments set together. Everybody's in the same key. Everybody's in the same tune. There's a perfect agreement of the hearts, the desires, the wishes, the voices of two or more persons praying to their God. That's from Adam Clark. Note here the power, though, of the combined prayer. There they are praying together, and there is power in them. Jesus says, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You see, this is what people need to do when they pray together, asking God to do things. They need to take advantage of the power of agreement. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 30, gives us this principle. It says that when Israel was blessed, one of them would send a thousand enemies to flight. But two of them would send 10,000 enemies to flight. Do you see, it's a multiplication of effect. One says 1,000, but two don't send 2,000, two send 10,000. And that's how it is when there's agreement in prayer. Now look, let me tell you something. 
This instructs us on how we should pray together in groups. I think this is a hugely important principle that should govern our prayer meetings. When we pray together with other people, we should pray under the principle of agreement. In other words, we pray for things based on what we can agree together, what we can symphonize for before God. If you and I are praying for something, and we're praying for God to do something, and yet I'm praying in a way that you can't really agree with, we've lost our principle of agreement, right? No, we should pray in a way, either by spoken agreement, or sometimes often it's by unspoken agreement between us, right? But we should pray in a way where our hearts are in agreement. Now, by the way, if you just think about this, this will govern our prayer meetings together in a very powerful way. Do you know why it is so injurious, why it's so harmful at a prayer meeting when somebody starts praying on and on and on and on and they won't, I'll say it strong, they won't shut up. They just keep, do you know why? Because you can't agree with them anymore, right? You've just lost track of what they're saying. How does it sound in your ears after a blah, 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 blah. They're preaching a sermon to God. They're preaching a sermon to everybody else. They're talking to themselves. They're remembering this. They're remembering blah, 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 blah. And you've just lost the principle of agreement. Do you know why in a prayer meeting it's very difficult or very harmful if people don't ask for something specific when they pray? Because you need to give us something to agree upon. You you need to say, we're going to come together and agree upon this. We're going to symphonize together and believe that our prayers have power. And the next time you have the opportunity to pray with somebody about something. Now look, let's understand, not all prayer is asking God for something, right? Sometimes it's just rejoicing. Sometimes it's just thanksgiving. There, the principle of agreement is not so essential. But I tell you, if you're going to ask God for something, you and the people you pray with need to pray in agreement, and you need to pray in a way that will promote agreement among the people, because that is the power in prayer. Please understand, if the group of us were to get together for a prayer meeting right now, the power in prayer wouldn't be that there's just one individual here praying and another individual here praying and a third individual there praying, as if all those people would have just as much power in prayer as if they were off at their homes praying individually. No, there's power when we come together under the principle of agreement and pray that God will hear us. And so this is a very important principle for our prayer meetings that should not be neglected. We need to pray according to the principle of agreement. Why? Because we have a tremendous promise here. Verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus here told us that meetings of his people, meetings that are full of power, meetings that are full of authority, meetings that are connected to heaven, they don't have to be large gatherings. Uh, They can be of two or three of his followers at a time. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I have. Listen, I've enjoyed remarkable spiritual experiences in large congregations. I'm very blessed to say that. I have also experienced remarkable spiritual experiences in gatherings of two or three. And don't think that it's the size of the crowd that brings more of the presence of God there. No, Jesus is just as much present in a little congregation as he is in a great big mass meetings. I like what William Barclay said. He said that Jesus is not the slave of numbers. He's there wherever faithful hearts are meeting, however few they may be, for he gives all of himself to each individual person. Could you imagine Jesus doing otherwise? Could you imagine Jesus sitting back up there in heaven and saying, all right, you know, there's five people gathered there in my name. I'll be with them a little bit. But I'm looking around for where there's 500 or 5,000. There I'll really give it my all. Jesus would never do that. He would honor the little group as much as the great group. Isn't it wonderful? A meeting of two or three, it isn't hard to gather. 
that somebody is always close at hand and it isn't difficult to find a place to meet for two or three. Now, please understand this. He doesn't say two or three just so that we can be encouraged to be away from meetings, right? Well, they don't need me there. If two or three gather, God can bless them. No, 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 no. It's to encourage those who are faithful enough to go. It shows us so many things. It shows us that large numbers are not essential. It shows us that the rank of the people is not essential. Can anybody show me in verse 20 where it says two or three pastors are together? Well, he makes no mention of pastors whatsoever, does he? He says two or three are gathered. He doesn't give them any rank whatsoever. He also shows us that the particular place is not essential. Does he say if two or three gather in a church building, there I will be in the midst of them? No, he doesn't say that. He also shows us that the particular time is not essential. If two or three gather on Sunday morning at 1030, I will be there in the midst of them. No, no, no. And it also shows us that the particular form the meeting should take is not essential. No, it's very simple. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. But what it does show us is that the essential thing is that they are gathered together, what? In Jesus' name. The numbers aren't important. The rank of the people aren't important. The particular place is not important. The particular time is not important. The particular form the meeting holds. All of those things are not essential. But being gathered in the name of Jesus That is what is essential. And what does it mean? Well, to gather together in his name means that we are known by him and by his name. Jesus would know us. It also means that he is our point of gathering, right? We're not gathered because we share the same political opinion. We're not gathered because we share the same socioeconomic status. We're not gathered because we share the same uh, life experiences. We're gathered because Jesus is our point of focus. Gathering together in his name means that we gather together according to the character and nature of Jesus. I have to be honest. Some meetings I've seen and some meetings I've been to, I've had the thought that Jesus would walk in the midst of this and say, This is really weird. What are these people doing? And it just seems so out of character according to the nature of Jesus. But gathering together in his name means to gather, at least in some way, as Jesus himself would. It means to gather together in a manner that Jesus would endorse. And what's the promise? Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name... I am there in the midst of them. Now, again, I love it. Did Jesus say, I am there up front, especially close to the pastor and the worship leader? No. I love what he says. I am there in the midst of them, right there in the middle, to be close to everybody. It means that Jesus should be proclaimed and revealed to everybody. Everybody should be able to connect to Jesus. He's not just in one part of the church. He's right there in the midst of them where everyone can be close to them. Oh, we should be lifting up Jesus in our meetings. You know, some people leave a church meeting saying this. They say, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Because where is Jesus? I don't know where he was, but no. When the awareness of Jesus is there, then we know, we know he's visited us. And he is. He's in our midst. Think about a gathering. It could be a gathering of just a few Christians, two or three, if you will. It could be a gathering of two or three thousand Christians. But think about it. Jesus is there. Why? He's there. He's in our midst because he's in us. Right? Jesus is in you, is he not? He's in me. He's in you. Jesus is in our midst because here we are gathered together in Jesus' name. He's in our midst because his word is opened and honored. He's in our midst because we remember what he did at the cross for us. He's in our midst because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he's in our midst And that means blessing for his people. Can Jesus be in the midst of his people and his people recognize that he's there in their midst and it not be a blessing for them? Now again, I think it's remarkable that Jesus said this. And I think the reality of this should just pierce through in our lives. I'll never forget hearing a great story from the Welsh revival of 1904. 
uh, the, the, the story was that the man who was remarkably used in that revival, Evan Roberts, he, he just had a remarkable season of ministry where he would go about from church to church every night. He never announced a schedule. He was just led of the Spirit to show up at a particular church in this whole great region of Wales, and he would go there, and God was just doing the most remarkable things in these meetings. But, but for some reason, people knew at this particular church that Evan Roberts was going to come to their church that particular night, and the church was packed absolutely packed because Evan Roberts was going to come in the midst of this great revival. There he was coming to that church that night. So Evan Roberts came and it is said that it was so crowded in that church that Evan Roberts had to walk to the front of the platform through the crowd on the shoulders of the men because there wasn't room to walk in the midst of this crowd. He climbed over the pulpit because it was so crowded and jammed on back of the pulpit. There he stands finally behind the pulpit and he speaks to the congregation. And this is how he says. He says, ladies and gentlemen, of course I'm paraphrasing, not the exact words, but this is the gist of it, of course. He says, do you believe the promises of God? And everybody's so excited at the meeting. There they are, it's just the full strength of revival and Evan Roberts is in their midst. Do you believe the promises of God? Oh, yes, we believe the promises of God. And then he said, would you believe that a promise made by the Lord Jesus was especially precious. And everybody's, oh yes, yes, we believe it especially precious if the Lord Jesus said. And, and, and then he said, do you believe the promise that Jesus said that wherever two or three are gathered there I am in the midst of them. Or two or three gathered in my name. And they said, yes, we believe it. And then he said, are there more than two or three here tonight? And everybody laughed, you know, because there were hundreds and hundreds crowding this small church. And then Evan Roberts said, well, if Jesus is here tonight, then you don't need me. And he put on his hat, and somehow or another, he worked his way through the crowd, and he left and went to a different meeting. And they asked somebody, they said, well, what was it like after Evan? Surely it must have been a tremendous letdown. And the man said, no, no. We were all kind of shocked for a moment. And then we realized, he's right. Jesus is here in our midst. And we went on to have the most wonderful meeting that night with Jesus in our midst. Well, it's a true principle, is it not? And knowing this, understanding this, it should help us more and more to get our eyes off the minister or the pastor or the preacher, whatever you want to call it, and more and more upon the Lord Jesus himself. One last thing before I move on to verse 21. Do we not notice that Jesus here is making a very bold claim to deity? Right? Come now. If I were to say this, wherever two or three of you gather together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You'd say, what, are you crazy? Who do you think you are, God? That you're omnipresent now? That you can be two places at once? Only God could say such a thing. And Jesus is God. He made this remarkable claim because he is God himself. Verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, the whole discussion has been since the beginning of chapter 18, getting along in difficult situations in the body of Christ, right? What, what to do when, when, when in the body of Christ, you, you sort of rub up against one another, you wrong one another. That's sort of been a theme here in it. And so in the midst of this, it's very logical for Peter to ask this question. Jesus, we're talking about conflict with our brothers. We're talking about this problem among the, the community of those who follow you. Hey, if my brother sins against me, how often shall I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, in light of what Jesus said about agreement and unity, I think Peter was trying to sound extra spiritual and extra loving. You know, Jesus, I think that I would forgive somebody up to seven times. Now, I believe that Peter would know that the common rabbinical teaching in that very day was that you would forgive a person three or maybe four times at the very most if they sinned against you. Three would be generous. Four would be extraordinarily generous. 
And Peter says, I'm going to show Jesus how spiritual I am. Jesus, don't you think I should forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus is, excuse me, Peter's probably expecting to get this big hug from Jesus. Oh, Peter, I'm so proud of you. Oh, Peter, oh, you're really coming along. Wow. You know all that stuff I said about get behind me, Satan? I take it all back, Peter. Look how spiritual you are. Oh, Peter, you want to forgive somebody seven times? Oh, God bless you, Peter. Jesus didn't say that. What did he say? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times. And they're all waiting for him to say something like four instead. No, he says, but up to 70 times seven. This was an unexpected answer from Jesus. Because basically you understand what he means. He means your forgiveness to another person is to be unlimited. Unlimited. Unlimited is surely the idea behind 70 times 7. It would be very strange if Jesus expected us to count up to 490 times when somebody had sinned against us, and on the 491st time, then we withhold our forgiveness. No, no. Instead, he's actually referencing back a passage in the Old Testament. You know, in Genesis chapter 4, what do we have? What we have the sin of Cain and Abel. And when God pronounces his sin upon Cain, excuse me, his curse upon Cain, not his sin, when God pronounces his curse upon Cain, Cain complains and he says, listen, this is such a severe judgment upon me. Anybody who sees me on the earth will want to kill me. And what does God say? God says, if anybody harms Cain, a sevenfold vengeance will come upon whoever harms Cain. Now, later on in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24 to be exact, a guy comes along the scene named Lamech. And do you know what Lamech's claim to fame was? He was tough. He was such a tough guy that this is what he said. He said, I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for wounding me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold, using the same number that Jesus used here, 490. Lamech was saying, yeah, if Cain was going to be avenged sevenfold, I'm going to be avenged 77-fold. Now, Jesus is taking the same statement that, that was an expression of Lamech's vindictiveness and, and, and cruelty and toughness and Jesus turns it around to say that's how forgiving we should be to other people. You know how tough Lamech was? That's how forgiving you and I should be. To illustrate the point, Jesus gives a parable, starting out verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, that payment would be made. Now, you need to understand, first of all, few ground rules coming into this part of the parable. First of all, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wants to settle his accounts with his servants. Okay. By the way, it's fascinating to us how many of the parables deal with this. How many of the parables deal with money, with giving account, with a ruler dealing with his subjects. Okay, next verse, verse 24, I believe. And when he had begun to settle uh, accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, how much in today's money is 10,000 talents? Well, different Bible scholars differ. Some people say it was about 12 million euros. Other people say it was about a billion euros. Let me just say it was an unpayable debt. Absolutely unpayable. Do you want to know how unpayable it was? Okay, how much did he owe? 10,000 talents, right? Look at what it says there in the next verse, verse 25. 
But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. Okay, do you know what the top selling price was for a slave in that culture? Top selling price. This is assuming that this man and his wife and his children, how many children do you want to give them? Five children? Let's say five children, okay? Man, wife, five children, and all that they had, top selling price in that day was one talent for a slave. But let's say they were that good. So for the whole family, you get seven talents. And then let's say he owned a lot of stuff. Everything else was worth three talents. So you sell the man everything he has. You sell all the children into slavery. And what do you get in return? You get maybe ten talents. How much did the man owe? Ten thousand talents. Ten talents doesn't even pay the interest on the problem, much less the problem itself. So you can see that the problem is very difficult for the man coming now into verse 26. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. That's it. That verse 26 is funny. I imagine that when Jesus said that, a great big smile went across the face of his disciples. Why? Because they picture this man begging, Master, if you're just patient with me, I can pay you that billion dollars I owe you. What are you, crazy? I mean, it doesn't matter how patient you are with me. I'm never going to come up with that much money. But he acts as if his problem is, I just need more time. If you'll just be patient with me, then I can do it. No, you can't do it, Mr. Slave. You can't do it. The the servant here. There's no way you can ever repay this debt. Fortunately, the master was merciful. Look at verse 27. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Isn't that wonderful? To be forgiven a debt you could never pay purely because of the compassion of your master. That's a wonderful thing. Verse 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So the man walks out and he sees a guy who owes him some money. How much does he owe him? He owes him a hundred denarii. Now, how much is a hundred denarii? Well, it's not an insignificant amount of money. A hundred denarii is a hundred days wages for a working man. So let's say one third of a year's salary. Okay, one third of a year's salary. Now that's certainly a significant amount, right? That's that's money to be paid back. But is it anything compared to a billion euros or a billion dollars? Nothing at all. So what does he do? He goes out and he sees this guy, owes him a thousand or a hundred denarii. And what does he do? He goes to him, and the word in the ancient Greek is very expressive. It says, he took him by the throat. There's a great word in sort of old English that indicates this. It's the word to throttle somebody. And to throttle somebody is to literally grab them by the neck and start shaking them. You're not exactly choking them. The purpose isn't to choke them, but the purpose is to just grab them by the neck and shake them. And that's exactly what it says in the ancient Greek that he did. He grabbed this guy by the neck and he started shaking him, which must have felt very comfortable for the man who owed the money, right? And he starts screaming at him, verse 28, pay me what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Can I ask you something? Where did you hear those words before? Just back a few verses, he said exactly the same thing that the first servant said to the master. But what was the response? Verse 30, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and he came and told their master all that had been done. 
Then his master, after he had called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you if from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The principle is very clear, right? Does anybody have any problem understanding this parable? God has forgiven such a great debt to us that any debt that is owed to us by another person is absolutely insignificant in comparison. No man or no woman can possibly offend me to the extent that my sins have offended God. And this principle must be applied to the little things that are done to us, but also to the great things done to us. And so Jesus says in verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You know, the broader context of this Matthew chapter 18 chapter is a lot about how Christians should get along with each other or the followers of Jesus, if you want to say that. And I know of no principle more meaningful and sometimes more difficult for Christians than forgiving one another. Because let's be honest, some of you have been profoundly sinned against Some of you have been sinned against in terrible ways. And you struggle with this. You you struggle with forgiving. You struggle with forgetting. You struggle with being set free from this. But please hear what Jesus says. Jesus taught us here an important and an often neglected principle regarding forgiveness. There are many sincere Christians who deliberately withhold hold forgiveness from other people and they do it out of mistaken reasons. They they say, you have sinned against me, but I will not forgive you and I will not forgive you because I'm trying to forgive you, but it's difficult. I will not forgive you because I don't think God wants me to forgive you. And oftentimes, this is the, the reasoning that goes for people. They say, I will not forgive you because... You're not repentant. And I'm not going to forgive you until you repent. This is how the reasoning works. We should not forgive another person who sins against us until they are properly repentant. And this is because repentance is mentioned in the context of some of the commands to forgive, such as in Luke chapter 17, verse 4, and because our forgiveness to others is to be modeled after God's forgiveness to us. And again, this is how the reasoning goes. I don't think it's proper reasoning, but this is how the reasoning goes. And I can tell you how the reasoning goes, because I used to think like this. The idea goes, since God does not forgive us apart from repentance, so we should not forgive other people unless they properly repent to us. As a matter of fact, the reasoning goes even further. The reasoning says we have a duty to not forgive other people. And to and we have a duty to judge and to discern their repentance because it's ultimately in their best interest to do so. So you sin against me and you're not repentant. Therefore, I don't forgive you. And furthermore, if you do come to me and say some words of confession or repentance, it's my duty to judge whether or not that confession and that repentance was real, whether or not it was legitimate. And of course, if it is, then I'm duty-bound to forgive you. Now, this thinking, and I speak as one who used to teach this, this thinking, even if it means well, is incorrect and I think ultimately dangerous. And this parable shows us why it is incorrect. It is incorrect for us to think 
God doesn't forgive me without my repentance. Therefore, I must withhold repentance from other people who sin against me until they properly repent. Do you know why this thinking is wrong? Here's why. Because I do not stand in the same place as God in this equation. And I never can. Never. No. God stands as one who has never sinned, who has never needed to be forgiven, and has never been forgiven. I stand as one who has been forgiven and needs continual forgiveness. Do you see how this parable shows that very plainly? It's so plain. Therefore, if it were possible, we should be far quicker to forgive than God is without the precondition of repentance because we stand as forgiven sinners who must also forgive. We have an even greater obligation to forgive than God does. Is that not true? Does not this parable teach us exactly that? We have a greater obligation to forgive than God does. Since we have been forgiven so much, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from others. We are the debtor who is forgiven an almost infinite debt. So will we hold on to the small debts that other people owe to us? Listen, if anyone has the right to withhold forgiveness, it's God. And he forgives more freely and more completely than anyone we know. Now, I'm not trying to say that God does not forgive apart from repentance. That is true. For someone to be forgiven before God, there must be humbling, there must be confession, there must be repentance. But please understand how this works. It is not an exact one-for-one correlation. I'll just ask you specifically. Have you specifically asked God, have you specifically confessed and asked God for forgiveness for every sin you've ever committed? I don't think so. I don't think you have enough time in the day to do that, right? I mean, if you understand what sin is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you specifically confessed and asked forgiveness for every way that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? I don't think so. Now, God does require from us, and might I say, he works in us by his spirit, but he does require from us a general attitude of repentance and confession before him. Absolutely true. I hope nobody will take my remarks tonight to think that I'm not pro-repentance. Listen, repentance is absolutely essential. You can make the great argument that repentance is the first word of the gospel. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Jesus sent the apostles out to preach repentance. Peter preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance to five of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Repentance is absolutely essential for the beginning and the ongoing of the Christian life. So please nobody think that I'm anti-repentance. What I'm anti is the withholding of forgiveness. It's also important to understand that a distinction can and should be made between forgiveness and reconciliation. True reconciliation of relationship can only happen when both parties are agreeable to it. And this may require repentance on one or both sides of the parties of the conflict. Right? I fully recognize that reconciliation often can't happen without repentance on one or both sides of the problem. But I distinguish forgiveness from reconciliation. The power of forgiveness, if you have been sinned against, the power of forgiveness is in you. You can choose to forgive them. I think the principle clearly stands. This parable was given to make us more forgiving, not less forgiving. 
No one could reasonably read this parable and think that Jesus was trying to restrict forgiveness among his disciples. And anybody who reads any part of the New Testament, for example, that great passage, I believe it's in Ephesians, I might be quoting it in the wrong place, but I certainly know the verse, where he says, uh, forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, there are some people who use that to restrict forgiveness, to make forgiveness smaller. Well, listen, God didn't forgive me without repenting, so I'm not forgiving you without repenting. Listen, does anybody read that verse, forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you? And does anybody think that Jesus was trying to make forgiveness smaller from that verse? Was the forgiveness he gave to you small or big? People who read this or other passages and think, therefore be somewhat stingy with forgiveness as your Father in heaven is somewhat stingy with forgiveness, they miss the whole point of the parable. Instead, we should take what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, therefore be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. So he says, so my heavenly Father will do also to you. Now, it would be wrong to take into this the idea that unforgiveness itself is the unforgivable sin. I think it's better to say that forgiveness is evidence of truly being forgiven. And that habitual unforgiveness may show that a person's heart has never really been touched by the love of Jesus. You know, you can say that we have a whole continuum here, right? On the extreme end right here is the person who never forgives, never. And on the far end of the continuum on the other end here, we have the person who always forgives, right? Well, the person who's over here, the never forgives person, I question whether or not they're born again. The, the person who always forgives, the, there's good reason, there's good assurance of their salvation, right? But let's face it, where are we? We're in the middle, right? I, I don't think I'm looking out on any never forgives people. Matter of fact, when you and I struggle with forgiveness, it's usually in some special cases, is it not? Some special events, some special circumstances, some special people who have wounded us in a special way, and you're struggling with forgiveness on that. Will you not take from this great assurance, Jesus, would you please fill me with the love that you forgave me with so that I can forgive other people with? This is why I think it's so important. Look at the punishment of the unforgiving man in the parable of Jesus. Did you see it there in verse 34? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers till he should pay all that was due to him. There are many poor souls in the body of Christ who to this day are tortured by their unforgiveness towards other people. You know, in my years as a pastor and in ministry, many times I have prayed with a person about this. Do you know what they struggle with? They come to a point of decision. I will forgive. Maybe after hearing a Bible study like this, I will forgive. Jesus, I forgive them. And they feel so free in their heart. It's just wonderful. Oh, yes, I will forgive. I have forgiven. It, thank you, Jesus. And then the next afternoon, what do they feel? They feel it coming back again, right? And do you know what I tell them? I say, listen, don't let that tell you that your first forgiveness was unreal. It was real. It's just something that you have to keep on doing. You have to keep on forgiving. Keep on setting your heart free and free from the torturers. Listen, when I think of all that Jesus has forgiven me, I want to be a very forgiving person. Don't you? Father, that is our prayer here tonight.
We want to forgive others. We want to be merciful to others, just as you have been merciful to us. And Father, I know how difficult this is. I know how this hits in some of the most difficult places of Christian obedience and sanctification of life. But you love us, Lord. You're good to us. And we believe that you'll work these things in us by the power and the presence of your Spirit. Do it, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.